The name of the talk tonight is In the Scene, Just the Scene. What I'd like to do tonight for the talk is to tell you a story. And you've heard a few stories since you've been here, a number of stories, personal stories, Dr. Seuss stories, Dharma stories. What I would like to encourage is that you listen to the story both as a teaching and as a myth and as a reflection, um, as a practice kind of in the form of a koan. A koan being a Zen teaching story that maybe you don't get totally with your <coughs> logical mind. But in terms of uh, practicing with this story, reflecting, to really let it, let yourself listen with your body and your heart as well as your mind. And I'll tell a story and um, we'll see how certain themes of practice are emphasized and emerge kind of naturally out of the story. And it's a teaching story from the Pali Canon, uh, from a small book called the Udana. And the Udana is uh, the book of inspired utterances. So we'll see what you think. We'll see if uh, there's some inspired utterances in this story. And what I'll do is I'll read the story and comment on it. So you'll hear a kind of contemporary commentary, a la Eugene. (laughs) And I'd like to say why uh, I like to tell this story and comment on it. One of the main reasons is when I first came to practice, I really loved the practice quite immediately. I just just, uh, found it... um, exciting and interesting, fascinating, illuminating, difficult, of course, um, and inspiring. And I didn't care about the suttas or the sutras, the teaching stories at all. I was like, later for that, let's go sit. That's where the action is. And it took me a long time to kind of... uh, find my relationship with the teaching stories and the joy and inspiration and instruction and connection that has come for me in really engaging these ancient teachings. And so I hope that there's some of, a little bit of that for you in hearing this story. <clears throat> and so the story begins, Thus have I heard. And we can stop right there. (laughs) This is a really important line. This is the first line, thus have I heard. This is the first line of all the teaching stories of the Buddha. The teaching stories come from this ancient and oral tradition. They're really Ananda's gift to us. Ananda was the devoted attendant of the Buddha. And Ananda, one of his uh, powers was this incredible memory. And he remembered all the stories that the Buddha told, all the teaching sutras, and also all the events that happened. And so after the Buddha died, Ananda would tell the stories and then everybody else would learn to remember them so that they could be passed on in this way, orally. That you hear the story, you feel it, you sense it with your body, your heart, your mind, and let it have its impact, and then you pass it on. And I I love that. I love that we are the beneficiaries of Ananda's uh, good works, and his devotion, and his inspiration. 
And I hope that you can feel your connection here very directly to this 2,500 years of Dharma. So I may be telling the story right now, but it's the story that Ananda told and that countless monks and nuns have told between Ananda and me. And that this happened, that Ananda saw this or heard this and then is telling us now. And it really, for me, part of what I love about these stories is the sense of actual connectedness with the people who, like us, have struggled, suffered, uh, continued, felt doubt, were impassioned at times, and awakened at times for the past 2,500 years. Uh, Sometimes I feel like... um, We've stepped into this stream and we're not even aware of the water. Can you become aware of the water that we're swimming in together? That's come from a great mountain source that continues to flow and will take us to the ocean of awakening. Pretty poetic, huh? (laughs) It just kind of comes out sometimes. (laughs) See what happens when you read these stories? (laughs) And that was just one sentence. (laughs) So, thus have I heard. (laughs) At one time, the Blessed One, the Buddha, was staying near Svati in the Jetta wood at Anattapindaka's monastery. Sentence two. Okay, this is full of dharma, this sentence, seriously. So Svati is a town in India, and Jetta Wood, also known as Prince Jetta's Grove, was this beautiful park. And Anattapindaka, actually I have to back up and tell you a little about who Anattapindaka is, or was. He is one of the main elders, fathers of our lay heritage, of the heritage of a lay tradition of practice. And I have an incredible affinity and affection for Anattapindaka because of his role in the Buddha's teachings. Anattapindaka, um, he went out to, the story goes a little bit, very quickly, he went to his cousins one day and he was a big kind of wealthy businessman and he was being ignored. And he didn't know why. He was a little upset about it. And he said, How, what are you all so busy rushing around? And his cousin said, well, we, the Buddha is coming to lunch tomorrow, basically. We're preparing. And Anatta Pindaka is immediately kind of stunned. He says, a Buddha? His, his cousin says, yes, a Buddha. He says, you mean a Buddha? His cousin says, yeah, a Buddha. And Anatta Pindaka again, he, a, a real Buddha? His cousin says yes, and Anattapindaka is really excited, thrilled. He has dreams about going to see the Buddha, goes to see the Buddha, and is immediately taken with him. He sees the, the beauty of this awakening, this awakened being. And so at a certain point, um, he wants to give something to the Buddha. And he wants to give him a, a practice place for the rains retreat. And he asked Prince Jetta, he says, how much for your park? And Prince Jetta is kind of kidding around and being a little flippant with the Natapindaka. He says, cover it with gold and it's yours. Not any time. That's a large amount of money if you cover, you know, 400 acres like Spirit Rock is with gold. That's a lot of dough. And Anattapindaka, without batting an eye, says, it's done. That's some powerful Donna there. (laughs) Prince Jetta didn't believe it. He starts trying to waffle. He says, oh, I was just, I didn't really mean it, and things like that. And and Anatta Pintika asks the people around, did he say it? He said it. I said yes, and he holds him to it. And that's how the first 
the first place for the monks and nuns to practice comes about um, is through Anatta Pindaka's generosity. And I have felt a great appreciation for Anatta Pindaka as Spirit Rock's been built through that same generosity. That actually Anatta Pindaka sits here. Many of you have given that this place was created. And many people with that same feeling of this is really wonderful have given so that we could sit in this meditation hall here tonight. And actually there's more stories about Anattapindaka. It's beautiful stories and that's another whole nother talk. So the Buddha's staying in Anattapindaka's monastery. And at that time, Bahia of the Bark Cloth was living by the seashore at Suparaka. So I just, just picture Bahia of the Bark Cloth. It's kind of very hip, ascetic gear. <laughs> you know? And he, it said in the story that Bahia was respected, revered, honored, venerated, and given homage, and was one who obtained the requisites of robes, alms food, lodging, and medicines. So Bahia was a wandering ascetic, kind of a wandering sadhu. You can go to India now and see sadhus who are doing this kind of wandering practice. I think some of our friends here have done this kind of practice at times. <laughs> I love picturing John kind of caked with mud wandering around India. <laughs> and he was, like John, a sincere practitioner. And he was respected in the communities that he wandered in. That's what that means. He was respected. He was honored. He was cared for by the community's dana. He was given the requisites of clothing and um, food and shelter and medicines when he needed it. So he was worthy of their respect. His practice, his virtue was worthy of their respect. Now, it is said, while he was in seclusion, while he was practice, doing his practice, Bahia, this reflection arose in the mind of Bahia of the bark cloth. And he kind of comes into his mind. You may have had something like this arise in your mind during your sitting here. He wonders, am I one of those in the world who are arahats or who have entered the path to arahatship? And an arahat is a worthy one, a noble one, a fully awakened being. So have you wondered while you're here? Huh? Am I a Buddha yet? Am I at least in the right place so that maybe I'll awaken? This is his wondering. And, and I think about this reflection a few different ways. That partly it's a reflection of where am I in this practice? And I think it's a really valid reflection not to take every moment or every sitting, but once, once every three or four days, just to reflect, well, where am I? How am I doing this practice? Not as a judgment, not as Mara coming to tell you you're doing it wrong or bad, but actually to kind of get a sense of, how, are you doing it with the kind of sincerity you want to be doing it with? Are you bringing uh, a good balance of effort and relaxation to the practice? Are you um, being as continuous as you can? What do you understand or not understand is always a good question. You know, what, what do you see? What don't you see? So you can ask appropriate questions at times. What have you realized? What haven't you realized? Without judging that, but that being a really valid um, understanding to come to. What's clear, what's not clear. These are important reflections to make 
again, not every sitting. Just do the practice for a while. Then every number of days you can just take a few minutes and just reflect. Or before you go for your interview, to reflect. How am I doing? What, what, what would help to know or to say? How might I use a reflection like this about how I'm doing to deepen my understanding, my commitment, my realization? Now, there's a second way that I've been thinking about this question, and really it's something that Guy pointed me to. He said, when we were talking about the Bahia story, he said he always thinks that if you're asking the question of if you're an arhat or not, that's kind of a clue. (laughs) You're probably not there yet. So, but Bahia is really... He's very devoted in his practice, very sincere, and he raises this question, and he gets this answer. It said, Then a deva, who was a former blood relation of Bahia of the bark cloth, kind of a cousin of his in a former life, it said, who was a former blood relation of Bahia of the bark cloth, understood that reflection in his mind, being compassionate and wishing to benefit him, he approached Bahia and said, You, Bahia, are neither an arahat, nor have you entered the path to arahatship. You do not follow that practice whereby you could be an arahat or enter the path to arahatship. So uh, this is some intuition or inner knowing or guidance that comes to Bahia in the form of a deva a heavenly being whose compassion is not limited to being nice. (laughs) Not some kind of Pollyanna idea of compassion. This is the compassion of the truth. This is a very important understanding about really the breadth and depth of compassion. That being nice is one level. But the truth is another octave, really being able to say the truth, see the truth, hear the truth. It's really compassionate. And it's, you know, sometimes we talk about this as tough love, you know. Really to hear what is true might not be the truth we want to hear or idea what we should hear. And it's teachers sometimes uh, up here, we kind of have to encourage that, you know. We kind of say the same thing over and over. Don't look at other people. Don't leave notes, even though you want to. You know, really hold to your practice because it will support you in what you're doing. Come to the sittings on time. Don't read and write. Don't take breaks. People don't always want to hear that. They say, well, I've been doing enough. Or it really doesn't matter. Or some, you know what, the the biggest um, kind of uh, hindrance here is saying, well, somebody else was doing it. I saw somebody else talking or looking. How did you see them looking? (laughs) 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 But Bahia... Bahia is really guided by his devotion to the truth. The hard truth sometimes, but the truth. And it's really a great uh, mainstay or guidepost in our practice. Not just our practice on the cushion, but our practice for our whole life. That if we can orient towards the truth, it will lead us beyond our ideas of what's right and wrong, good or bad, should and shouldn't, it will really offer a great, uh, a great sense of guidance. This is from Ashvagosha. He says, The Dharma of the Buddha does not require a person go into homelessness or resign from the world unless one feels that that's one's calling. But the Dharma of the Buddha requires every person to free themselves from the illusion of self, to cleanse one, one's heart, 
to let go and lead a life of righteousness. And whatever people do, whether they're artisans, merchants, officers of the king, or if you become a religious meditator for the rest of your life, then let them put their whole heart into their task. Let them be diligent and energetic, and if, like the lotus flower, which grows out of muddy water but remains untouched by the mud, they engage in life without cherishing envy or hatred, and and they live in the world not a life of self, but a life of truth, then surely joy, peace, and bliss will dwell in their hearts and minds. It's such a beautiful reorientation. Not a life of self, but a life of truth. And so Bahia, on hearing this, he says, then in the world, including the devas, who are the arahats? Or who are those who have entered the path to arahatship? And the Deva answers, there is Bahia in a far country town, in, far, in a far country, a town called Svati. And there the Buddha now lives, who is the Arhat, the fully enlightened one. The Buddha Bahia is indeed an Arhat, and he teaches Dhamma for the realization of Arhatship. And here the Bahia represents us which he's represented all along, but it's very clear. He represents our yearning, our desire, our sincerity for awakening, for freedom, for truth, for understanding who we are. The motivation that brought you here is the same motivation that has him asking that question, well, where can I find, where is the truth? How can I know it? How can I awaken? Who can teach me? And it said that then Bahia of the bark cloth, profoundly stirred by the words of the Deva, then and there departed from Superraka, and taking but one night to complete the journey, he went to Svati, where the Blessed One was staying in the Jetta wood at Anathapindaka's monastery. And at that time a number of bhikkhus were walking up and down in the open air, and Bahia of the Barcloth approached these bhikkhus and said, Venerable ones, is the Buddha now living, the Arhat, the fully enlightened one? I wish to see the Buddha who is the Arhat. So I'll read a little bit of that again. He's profoundly stirred by the words of the Deva and he departs then and there. He's passionately following his practice. He's, he leaves, he lets go of everything in a moment when he hears that there is this awakened one who he can learn from. <clears throat> and we may have not left immediately like that, but you did a lot. You worked hard to get here, to plan this, put everything in order so you could leave. It's that same inspiration to wake up. And taking one night to complete the journey. This is in, actually, he was far from Svati. He couldn't literally do that. It, we're, we're, we're listening mythologically now. We need, to, we need to understand this part. We need to understand the power that comes when we commit to follow our deepest yearnings. In the interview today, somebody came and said, I want to understand this. I want to understand selflessness. I want to understand oneness. I want to understand enlightenment. And, but I'm afraid I'm desiring it too much. I think there's a clear discrimination that we can make between um, wholesome desire and unwholesome desire. You need the motivation to awaken, to come here. It's a good motivation. 
It's really the deepest motivation of every human being to really know oneself truly, completely. Rumi put it this way. He said, one night a man was crying out, Allah, Allah. His lips grew sweet with the praising until a cynic, I would say Mara, said, so I have heard you calling out, but have you ever gotten a response? The man had no answer to that. He quit praying and fell into a confused sleep. He dreamed he saw Keder, the guide of souls in a thick green foliage. Why did you stop praising? The man answered, because I've never heard anything back. This longing you express is the return message. The grief you cry out from draws you toward union. Your pure sadness that wants help is the secret cup. Listen to the moan of a dog for its master. That whining is the connection. There are love dogs no one knows the name of. Give your life to be one of them. Bahia is not afraid to follow his heart. He'll leave in a moment. Suzuki Roshi, it is said, would ask his students, what's your heart's inmost desire? Because it's really important to look as deeply as possible. What do you really want? What do you really want here? It's important to look because of the power that comes from following that yearning. This is a quote that was often read, not so much anymore, but in the early years of practice at retreats, and I I still really like it. Until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans, that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves also. All sorts of things occurred to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no man could have dreamed would have come his way. The power of following your heart. It's a very important part of practice. And so... He goes, he finds the monastery, he sees the bhikkhus, he asks, where is this Buddha? And he gets this answer. The Buddha, Bahia, has gone for alms food among the houses. How do you like those apples? You go, you travel in mythological time and get there in one day, and the Buddha's out to lunch. But our hero, Bahia's passion is unstoppable. And I hope your passion is unstoppable. We don't often talk so much about passion and practice, but it's right in the Satipatthana Sutta, the great teaching on mindfulness. The Buddha puts it this way in the first paragraph or two. He says, how do we practice? And he says, we practice ardent, uh, mindful, and fully aware. So mindful, fully aware. We know what mindful means, I hope, after these weeks. Fully aware means with clear comprehension. Ardent. What a beautiful word. I'm so happy that it's in that sutta. To practice 
ardently, is to practice passionately, heartfeltly, devotedly, intensely. In the Jewish tradition, there's a phrase, I might not have it totally right, but it says in the prayer book, you should love the Lord your God with all your body and all your soul and all your heart and all your soul and all your might. That's ardent practice. Your whole being, give your whole being to this practice. Practice ardently, which Bahia does. And so he doesn't let it stop him that the Buddha's out to lunch. The story continues. Goes, Bahia hurriedly left the Jetta wood and entering Svati among the houses, he saw the Blessed One walking for alms food in Svati, pleasing lovingly to see with calm senses and tranquil mind attain to perfect poise and calm, a perfected one, watchful with restrained senses. And on seeing the Buddha, he approached, fell down with his head at the feet of the Buddha and said, Teach me Dhamma, Buddha. Teach me Dhamma, Sugata, so that it will be for my good and happiness for a long time. Hmm. Could you imagine meeting the Buddha? The grace of that continence that being. Bahia recognizes this grace immediately, the beauty of grace, the delight, the realization. The sublime pleasure of awakening is quite present as the Buddha walks, sits, talks. And we all have tasted this grace and known the humility that comes spontaneously that we would put our head at someone's feet. You know it in that sense of just a breath when the mind has stopped for one moment and there's just a breath here, breathing itself or after hundreds of hours of walking where there's just a step being taken. There's nothing extra. There's a word uh, that I'd like to throw in here uh, from the Pali. It's papancha. I don't think we've mentioned papancha here yet. It's one of my favorite Pali words. It's got a nice ring to it as it comes out the mouth, papancha. You can kind of try it in your mind. Um, what it means is proliferation of mind. And it really is a lot what we see here. Here's something I have to say. One of the things I find so stunning, either as a practitioner or as a teacher, is to really look carefully what, what's actually happening here. We've been here for almost three weeks, and all we've been doing is sitting and walking, actually. And then all this stuff happens. <laughs> I mean, it should be so simple. It actually is that simple. That's what's hard about it. But we sit and walk, and then all this stuff of the heart and mind comes. And it, I respect it completely and totally. And it all can awaken us. But on a certain level, it's papancha. It's just, just the proliferation of mind. All that's actually happening here is we've been sitting and walking. It's so simple. It's so utterly simple what's happening that it's just tremendously difficult. Every once in a while I get a real hit of just what's happening. Oh, I'm just sitting here and walking here. And that's all that's going on. And everything else is kind of this proliferation. I, I, st I find it stunning still. Whew, the mind, amazing. 
And what we see when it's just a breath, or just a step, or just sitting, or just the bite of food, or just the blue, beautiful blue sky, is grace, the grace of awakening, the simplicity of grace. And you can, it's even more, maybe it might be easier for some people to recognize it in the arts. You ever go see a dancer who's just so graceful? What is that? What is that grace that we're able to see in a, in a beautiful dancer? What we see, or in an athlete, in, a, in Michael Jordan, or in Jerry Rice. Um, there's nothing extra. They're just, it's just Michael Jordan and the basketball and the hoop. There's nothing extra. And he's just flying through the air and the ball goes in. It's the grace of the nothing. And it's the same grace that you experience when there's just a breath and there's nothing extra. The grace of the nothing. So Bahia sees the Buddha. He's humbled by him in in the best sense of the word. And he asks for the teachings. He's not shy about his yearning and his desire. He really wants to know, please teach me. And the story goes, actually, Bahia said, teach me Dharma, Sugata, sweet one so that it will be for my good and happiness for a long time. And upon being spoken to thus, the Buddha said to Bahia of the bark cloth, it is an unsuitable time, Bahia. We are going for alms food. Alms round. Alms food. So the Buddha says, no. It's not how we think it is, you know? It's not how we think it's going to be. Oh, the Buddha's supposed to say yes, right? You know? We don't always answer your notes when you put them right up there, you know? You know? <laughs> and, I, and I think I like to reflect on this in many different ways. One is that the practice is not easy. We don't just say, okay, I want to I understand, I want to awaken. We come and sit down, boom, you awaken doesn't work that way. There are many, many obstacles to realization. Patience, as Sylvia spoke to the other night, is such an important and valuable uh, quality in practice. You know, in the Zen tradition, if you want to go to Tassahara, you have to do what's called Tangario. So you go down to Tassahara, and you have to sit alone for four or five or six days, all alone. Nobody really relates to you. They bring you your food. That's all you're doing. It's an obstacle to kind of test your sincerity. It's also to purify you a little bit, to enter the community. But part of it is to see how sincere it is. And at Tassahara, it's a very civilized version of this ancient custom. Actually, there's a lot of stories where somebody knocks on the door of the the, the monastery, and they, they throw the slops over the door, you know, on, on the person to test their sincerity. So, it's nice to be in the 20th century, huh? And maybe it points us to whatever our inmost desire is, whatever our deepest yearning is, always will come with struggle and some difficulty. It is an adventure in that way. It's a challenge in that way to realize it. It doesn't just happen. Um, I was listening. I had to go out for a couple hours this afternoon, and I have a little addiction to sports talk radio, so I turned it on. I haven't heard any in a while. And it turned out Orlando Cepeda, who was a great ball player for the Giants for many years, had just been uh, inducted or received the word that he was being inducted into the Hall of Fame. And I heard him speak a little bit. And what I was struck by was he talked about the struggle 
to get there, that he'd played for 17 years, he'd been a Puerto Rican player who'd helped kind of break the, the um, you know, prejudice and the restricted nature of the sport um, in terms of different cultures and races, um, and that he'd been, uh, he'd been turned down be once before in 1993 or something, by seven votes, which is a very, very small amount. And he talked about how painful that was and how it made him a better person and that this was even sweeter now to get in now because of what he went through when he missed out by so little, how he cried when he was rejected the first time uh, and how he got over it. And this is the oddest thing. He said... And, you know, I started practicing the Buddhist religion 15 years ago, and it really helped me. Because in Buddhism, it's not about winning and losing the small things. It's about realizing who we are. I just, it was really shocking. I, I didn't know that. So, I, so the difficulties are part of the practice. And even the Buddha saying no may be part of your practice at times. Now there's also another piece here with the Buddha saying no that is important. It's not quite as uh, uh, poetic. The Buddha is an awakened human being, right? Who's hungry. <laughs> and it's time to eat. And this is very practical because he's a monk and he has to eat by a certain time or he can't eat till the next day. And the, you know, here's Bahia, kind of last minute. The Buddha's trying to get some chow and Bahia is saying, wait, talk to me. And the Buddha's saying, wait, I only got 10 minutes. Let me go get my food and I'll talk to you a little later. It's, it's part of our practice to be a human being. And, but Bahia, who's passionate and devoted and who knows about, uh, who knows, you know the line in uh, the I Ching, perseverance furthers? I used to read it as a kid, the I Ching, and, the, and every time, every, it was always answered the same, perseverance furthers. <laughs> I think Bahia read that also. So he says, a second time Bahia said to the Buddha, it is difficult to know for certain, sir, how long the Buddha will live or how long I will live. <laughs> Teach me Dhamma, Buddha. Teach me Dhamma, Sugata, so that it will be good for my good and happiness for a long time. That's, he, he lays it on him there. And the Buddha answers, it is, Bahia, is, it is an unsuitable time, Bahia. We are going for alms food. Now this is a, a really important place because Bahia is on one level showing his wisdom. He realizes the truth of impermanence. And he also realizes the importance of persistence, of perseverance, of what we might call right effort. And I'd like to say a little bit about right effort in our practice, about your perseverance, your persistence. This is just from Suzuki Roshi. It's a beautiful little piece. Because he says, strictly speaking, any effort we make is not good for our practice because it creates waves in the mind. It is impossible, however, to attain absolute calmness of our mind without any effort. This is the paradox. How do we do effortless effort? He says, we must make some effort but we must forget ourselves in the effort we make. In other words, just make the effort and see what happens instead of expecting something, some result. In this realm, there is no subjectivity or objectivity. We should try to continue our effort forever, but we should not expect to reach some stage when we will forget all about it. We should just try to keep our mind on our breathing, on our feelings, on our experience. That is our actual practice. That effort 
will be refined more and more while you are sitting. At first the effort you make is quite rough and impure, but by the power of practice the effort will become purer and purer. When your effort becomes pure, your body and mind and heart will become pure. This is the way we practice. Have you noticed that, how your effort was rougher at first? And now it's pure on its own, just with your sincerity. So Bahia makes his effort, and he kind of puts it to the Buddha. He says, you know, who knows? Who knows when you're going to die or I'm going to die? And that allows me to read you a little poem about impermanence. This is Allen Ginsberg's last poem. It's called Gone, Gone, Gone. And he quotes Robert Burns. He says, The wane moon is sinking under the white wave, and time is sinking with me. Oh. Nallen writes, Yes, it's gone. Gone, 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 gone away. Yes, it's gone, 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 gone away. Yes, it's gone, gone, gone. It's gone away. Won't be back today. Gone, just like yesterday. Gone, gone, isn't anymore. Gone to the other shore. Gone, gone, it wasn't here to stay. Yes, it's gone, gone, gone out to play. It's gone, gone, no one here to pray. Gone, gone, yak your life away. Gone, gone. Now somebody else will pay. Gone, gone, your furniture lay away. Gone, gone astray, gone, gone, yes, it's gone, wallet and all you say. So you can waive your pay, it's gone. Tomorrow's another day, it's gone, gone turned old and gray. It's gone, bald and old and gay. Gone, white beard and cold. Yes, it's gone. Cashmere scarf and gold. Gone, warp and woof and wool. It's gone. Gone, gone, far, far away to the home of the brave. Down into the grave, it's gone. Moon under the wave, it's gone. So I end this song. Yes, this song is gone. Gone to kick the gong. It's gone. No more right and wrong. It's gone, gone, gone away. Mm. It's poignant that we don't know what's going to happen. But our hero, Bahia, is very persistent. And a third time he says to the Buddha, it's difficult to know if we're going to live or die. Please, teach me. And uh, traditionally in the teachings, the third time is the charm. It's very rare in the Buddhist scriptures that the Buddha's asked something three times and he refuses. I I actually can only think of once and it's really an important piece when he does that because everywhere else he, he assents. And here's what he says. So if you've been sleepy now, listen up because This is the important part, okay? Ready. Here in Bahia, 
you should train yourself thus. In the seen will be merely what is seen. In the heard, merely what is heard. In the sensed, merely what is sensed. In the cognized will be merely what is cognized. In this way you should train yourself, Bahia. So he gives him the shortest teaching, the most concise teaching of our practice and path. In the scene, just the scene. In the herd, just the herd. In the sense, just the sense. In the cognized, just the cognized. This is the heart of this teaching and the heart of our practice. This is the four foundations of mindfulness in four simple phrases. Allowing the bare experience of our existence to awaken us. Letting go of the papancha, of the stories, of the memories, of all memory, of the imaginings, of the wishings. Just here, just now, with your breath or your body or your feeling or the, or the mind. In the scene, just the scene. It's so simple here. Thich Nhat Hanh puts it this way. He says the key to, quote, observation meditation, which is what he calls vipassana, is that the subject of the observation and the object of the observation not be regarded as two separate things. In the scene, just the scene. He says, when we observe something, we are that thing. Non-duality is the key word. Observing the body in the body means in the process of observing, we do not stand outside of our body like an independent observer, but we identify with the object being observed. This is the only path that can lead us to the penetration and direct experience of reality. In the herd, just the herd. In observation meditation, the body and mind are one entity, and the subject and object of meditation are one entity also. The meditator is a fully engaged participant, not a separate observer. In the sensed, just the sensed. I'll say it another way from Ryokan. And I'm going to use the word no. The first two times I use it, it's N-O. And the last two times, it's K-N-O-W. So he puts it this way. He says, with no mind, blossoms invite the butterfly. With no mind, the butterfly visits the blossoms. When the flower blooms, the butterfly comes. When the butterfly comes, the flower blooms. I do not know others. Others do not know me. Not knowing each other, we naturally follow the way. That when we drop out of this knowing, conceptualization, ideas, imagining, memory, and come directly into this moment, we can naturally follow the way. In the cognized, just the cognized, just what's here, walking, sitting, eating, seeing, hearing, feeling,
Now that's the first part of the heart of the sutta. The second part, the Buddha continues, he says, in this way you should train yourself just with what's here, the bare experience, letting go of everything you know, knew, thought, dreamed, and be here with what is now. And he says, when bahia, in the seen is merely what is seen, in the etc., in the cognized is merely what is cognized, then bahia, you will not be with that. When bahia, you are not with that, then bahia, you will not be in that. When bahia, you are not in that, then bahia, you will be neither here, nor beyond, nor in between the two. Just this is the end of suffering. I think it's worth reading again. He says, Bahia, when you are not with this, when you are not in this, when you are not in that, then Bahia, you will be neither here nor there nor in between the two. Just this is the end of of suffering. Mm. Just, I just love that. It's so simple. In the scene, just the scene. So he's pointing Bahia at the truth of anatta of selflessness. You will not be with that. You will not be in that. You will be neither here nor there nor in between. Just this is the end of suffering. When there is just phenomena unfolding. The bare experience arising and changing moment after moment after moment. The I or me or mine is just papancha. It's just an idea. It's a very deeply ingrained idea, an idea we want to be very respectful of, kind, compassionate. And when we let go of this habit of mind, or maybe it's better said when it lets go of us, just that is the end of suffering. I think even we can get even more concise now. This is from a Sri Lankan monk who said, no self, no problem. <laughs> and it happens, it comes in practice. Li Po put it this way. He wrote, the birds have vanished into the sky and now the last cloud drains away. We sit together the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. Mm. Now, I've, I really got into this story. I've, I did lose track of the time a little, so I'm going to go a little bit quicker now. Um, it's one of my hindrances. <laughs> so it said, that now through this brief Dhamma teaching of the Buddhas, the mind of Bahia of the bark cloth was immediately freed from taints and without grasping. Sylvia mentioned that earlier in the retreat, that great phrase, freed from taints and without grasping. He got it. Whatever there was to get, he got it. And the Buddha, having instructed Bahia with this brief instruction, went for his lunch. <laughs> now what's interesting is this is a great story a beautiful story I find it inspiring even saying it again uh, but it doesn't stop there so there's a little bit more 
So what happens now is it said, not long after the Blessed One's departure, a cow with a young calf attacked Bahia of the bark cloth and killed him. I have to say, my first reaction to that was, give me a break. Sky awakens, and in the next moment, he gets killed by a killer cow. <laughs> so, you know, how to reflect on these suttas. One is, of course, again, we don't know what's going to happen. But also, here's a little bit how I reflected on it. It's something uh, Trungpa Rinpoche said. He called practice one insult after another. Or Suzuki Roshi talked about practice as one continuous mistake. And I've had this experience in practice, (laughs) actually, where every identity gets shredded. Every new self, oh, I'm a great meditator, gets pulled out from under you. And it's painful, this one insult after another. And it's humbling, and it's an important part of practice, because ultimately any identity is a prison. Who we are is much bigger than any identity. And so Bahia dies, and it's, it's sad. But he, he did what he wanted to do. And the text said, when somebody's realized like this, they'd say, uh, he did what needed to be done. And the Buddha, who's walking for his alms food, was returning from alms round with a number of bhikkhus. And on departing from the town, he saw with his mind's eye, with his powers, that Bahi of the bark cloth had died. And seeing this, he said to the bhikkhus, Take Bahia's body, put it on a leader, carry it away, and burn it, and make a stupa for it. For your companion in the holy life has died. And a stupa is a shrine. He makes a shrine for Bahia. And it points us to just a couple little pieces that I'll mention. One of which is, it doesn't matter how long you do the practice. Bahia did the practice. He just was there for however long, an hour? That's your sincerity, your devotion, your passion, your dedication. Who knows how long it'll take? Follow your heart in practice. Mm. And uh, there's one more piece. I won't do it all, but here's there's two little things I have to say. So they do it, they burn it, you know. And they ask uh, the Buddha, the bhikkhus ask about Bahia, you know, what about him? And, and Buddha says this, he says, Bahia of the bark cloth was a wise man. He practiced da- according to Dharma and did not trouble me by disputing about Dharma. I'll leave all of you to reflect on that. <laughs> Bahia of the bark cloth has attained final nibbana. And then the Buddha uttered this inspired utterance. And what's beautiful about this book is it's the poetry of the Buddha. And here's the poem that the Buddha says at the end of this story. He says, Where neither water nor yet earth nor fire nor air gain a foothold, there gleam no stars, no sun sheds light, there shines no moon, yet there no darkness reigns. When a sage, a Brahmin, has come to know this for herself through her own experience, then she is freed from form and formless, freed from pleasure and pain. He's really pointing at the ineffable, the unconditioned, the absolute, which cannot be described. It can only be spoken about in this mytho-poetic fashion. Where neither water, nor yet earth, nor fire, nor air gain a foothold. There gleam no stars, no sun sheds light. 
There shines no moon, yet no darkness reigns. When one comes to know this for him or herself, then one is freed from form and formless, from pleasure and pain. Let's sit for a minute. In the scene, just the scene, in whatever's here in this moment, breath or body or the sound, just this. <laughs> 